You know, when you walk into a McDonald's anywhere around the country, really around the world, you know what to expect. There's some things you know you're going to get at a McDonald's. And it was very similar back in my childhood days when it came to a Southern Baptist church. If you went to a Southern Baptist church anywhere around the nation, you knew what you were going to get. They were all basically the same. And I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in Perry, Florida. And we had the standard you know, piano on the left side, organ on the right side. We had some boards on the back wall on either side of the baptistry that had our attendance numbers for Sunday school and training union and worship and giving. So we saw those numbers every week. And you had the, the pulpit right there in the middle of the, the platform area. And right in front of that, that pulpit, there was a wooden table. And on that wooden table, there were some words written across the top that were words spoken by Jesus Christ. And if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, you probably remember this in your church. The words simply were, do this in remembrance of me. That was the Lord's Supper table. That was the table where we put the elements and we would celebrate communion. And I want to focus in on... Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in remembrance. I want to think about why he thought it was important that you and I remember. Now in 1 Corinthians 11, one of the most lengthy passages we have where Paul discusses with the local church what the Lord's Supper is all about, we see that there was an inward aspect, and there is an inward aspect when it comes to the Lord's Supper. He encouraged and implored the believers in Corinth to examine themselves, not to come to the communion time with flippant, careless hearts. So they would examine themselves and come with a, a gravity and a seriousness and a, a genuine uh, faith in Christ. So there's that inward aspect of, of searching your heart. and We'll have that time together in a few moments. And, and there's an outward aspect where he encouraged the people of Corinth to to uh, participate in this Lord's Supper as an act of unity in the body of Christ. They would come together outwardly, place their arms around one another, and come to the Lord's table. It is a step of unity in the body of Christ. And there's a a forward aspect. Jesus, uh, or Paul, told the believers in Corinth they were to do this until Jesus comes back. They were to, to celebrate communion until the return of Christ. And so as God's people are uh, taking part in the Lord's Supper. There's always an eye to the sky looking for the return of Jesus Christ. But I, I don't want to discuss this morning in detail the inward aspect or the outward aspect or the forward aspect. I want to, I want to discuss the backward aspect of the Lord's Supper when Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. I've been thinking a lot about that phrase this week and And I believe what Jesus was saying there was simply this. I want you, through these elements of the Lord's Supper, through the symbolic act, I want you to spend some time at the foot of the cross. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's it's an opportunity for you and me to go back to the foot of the cross. And as I was thinking about Lord's Supper this week and in my own personal devotional reading, I've been reading through Luke 23, spending time this week at the foot of the cross. And so I want you to go back with me to that passage, Luke chapter 23. And I want us to examine this passage quickly and 
and see some things here at the foot of the cross. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Look what it says in verse 26. Luke 23, verse 26. I'd ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Luke 23, verse 26. The Bible says, And as they led him away, as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And There followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, or Golgotha in the Aramaic, Calvary in the Latin, when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There also was an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Let's pray together this morning. Father, would you help us in these moments by your Spirit to spend some time at the foot of the cross, to see eternal realities in these moments that will stir our hearts and change our lives. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. There are three things that you and I can see clearly at the foot of the cross. And I want us to look at these three realities together. And by the way, you notice in your notes you have a little note page. You can jot down some notes. I didn't give you an outline, but just, just if you want to jot down these three things for further reflection, you certainly can do that today. But here are the, the three things I want you to see. First of all, at the foot of the cross, we see innocence dying for guilt. Innocence dying for guilt. Now, it's interesting in this narrative of Jesus' crucifixion in Luke 23 to see all of the different folks that, that understood the innocence of Jesus Christ. For example, Pilate declared his innocence. Look what it says in verse 13. You know, the religious leaders brought Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor of that area, because he had the authority to invoke the death penalty and put Jesus to death. And so they're trying to get Pilate to to buy into their hatred of Christ so that he will have him executed. And look what Pilate says 
uh, in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. This is after he had spent some time with Jesus. And said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading, misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And then look in verse 20. Pilate addressed them once more. They're, they're, uh, the crowd's being whipped into a frenzy, calling for Jesus' crucifixion. And Pilate addressed them once more, verse 20, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him, watch this, no guilt-deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him, trying to pacify the crowds. But they called ever more loudly for his crucifixion and death. So Pilate understood the innocence of Christ. And then one of the criminals declared the innocence of Christ. Remember, Jesus was crucified between two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Look what happens in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So this criminal, hanging by Jesus, understands that he is dying for what he had done wrong. And he also understands that Jesus had done nothing wrong, deserving this death. So the The criminal, one of the criminals, declares his innocence. And then the Roman centurion declared his innocence. Look what it says in verse 46. It says, Then Jesus, hanging on the cross, about the sixth hour, or the ninth hour, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this Man was innocent. So Pilate calls Jesus innocent. One of the criminals calls Jesus innocent. The Roman centurion in charge of putting Jesus to death calls Jesus innocent. They understood that Jesus Christ was not guilty of anything deserving crucifixion. And we need to understand the same thing about Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ lived as the God-man on this earth, fully God, fully man, tempted in every way as we are, yet, the Bible says, without sin. Jesus never said a wrong thing. Jesus never thought a wrong thought. Jesus never performed a wrong deed. Jesus was perfect. He, he lived out absolute moral perfection as he perfectly obeyed the law of God. Jesus, you might say, lived the life we could not live. He lived a perfect life so that he could go and die in our place. And so we see here innocence on the cross, dying for guilt. Now, let me tell you someone who really understood this. Maybe better than anyone else. Barabbas understood innocence dying for guilt. Because remember, Barabbas was in prison and he was scheduled to be crucified. As a matter of fact, I believe 
that the cross that Jesus was nailed to was Barabbas' cross. At the last minute, because of the frenzied Jewish mob calling for the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate makes a change. And he releases Barabbas, the guilty one, and crucifies Jesus, the innocent one. Now, I don't know what became of Barabbas. It'd be interesting to know that. But perhaps, on his way out out of Jerusalem, after he was free to go, perhaps he he gazed over toward that place called Golgotha. and, And maybe, just maybe, he saw that man named Jesus hanging on a cross meant for him. And maybe he didn't understand the theological import of all of that, but one thing Barabbas understood is that innocence was dying for guilt. Jesus took his place on the cross. And as you and I come to the foot of the cross, we understand that's what's happening, right? Jesus died innocence for guilt. His innocence for our guilt. Because you see, like Barabbas, we're all guilty. We all have a record. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus Christ, who is perfectly innocent, who lived a perfect life of his own volition, went to the cross and died for our guilt. Took all of our sin on himself. And so as we come to the foot of the cross this morning, as we remember, as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, as we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, and we gaze upon the cross, we are reminded that innocence died for our guilt. Aren't you glad? There's a second reality we see here. Not only innocence dying for guilt, but we see that at the cross, love and justice meet. Love and justice meet. Look what Jesus says in verse 34. As they are crucifying him, these Roman soldiers, spurred on by the Jewish religious leaders and the mob, are nailing him to the cross. Criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, listen to this, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Can you forgive those, Father, who are crucifying me? Now here's the question. How could a holy God, a God of absolute moral perfection, how could a holy God extend forgiveness to those responsible for his son's death? How can a holy God who must punish sin, how in the world could he forgive those who crucified Jesus Christ. That's an important question, isn't it? It's a vital question, and it's really important for us in this room because guess what? Every one of us are responsible for Jesus' death. I mean, we see here the Jewish religious leaders calling for his death, and we see the Roman soldiers actually carrying out the crucifixion, but you understand that he went to the cross to die for all of our sins. Not for ours only, but the sins of the world, the Bible says. He came to die for sinners like you and me. As the song says, it was my sin that held him there. We are all guilty. We are all responsible for Jesus' death on the cross. Who killed Jesus? You killed Jesus, and I killed Jesus. We're responsible for his death. The question is, how can God extend forgiveness, a holy God, 
to those who are responsible for the death of his son. Or let me ask it another way. How could God show us love and forgiveness but maintain his holiness by punishing our sin? How in the world could that happen? Well, listen to me. The cross provides the basis for the answer to his prayer. In other words, as Jesus says, Father, forgive them. He's saying, forgive them based upon what I'm accomplishing right now on this cross. You see, on the cross, God the Father was pouring out his wrath on God the Son, who willingly took that wrath for us. Jesus Christ took our punishment. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, 6, a a, a forward-looking prophetic passage that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all, right? So Jesus was being punished. God was maintaining his holiness by punishing our sin, by punishing Jesus in our place. And yet, the cross is the supreme demonstration of the love of God. Why would God the Father give his only son and punish him instead of punishing us? Because God loves us. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so at the cross, we see the supreme demonstration of God's justice and holiness and God's unconditional love for you and for me. At the foot of the cross, we see once again, we are reminded once again that the cross is where love and justice meet. The cross allowed God, as Romans 3 says, to be just and the justifier. And that's really good news. So how could could God forgive those who put his son to death? Because Jesus was purchasing their forgiveness right then on the cross, dying for their sins. So that if we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, God the Father will apply the shed blood of Jesus to our life. And His blood, as we're going to celebrate in a few moments, His blood will wash away our sins. So at the cross, at the the foot of the cross, we see innocence dying for guilt. And, And at the foot of the cross, we see love and justice meet. But there's a final thing I want you to see at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, we see opportunity. We see opportunity. Look what it says in verse 39. We read this a little earlier. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, mocking him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds? But this man, listen, has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, I love this, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So there at the cross, one of the criminals believes He believed that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be. 
He believed that Jesus Christ could save him and forgive him of his sins. And right there, hanging on the cross, this criminal places his faith in Jesus and his work. And Jesus says, that is saving faith today. You will be with me in paradise. And a little bit later on, the centurion proclaims, this is the Son of God. And and I believe that's when the centurion was saved as well. You see, at the cross, there's opportunity. There's opportunity for people to embrace Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. As they see Him dying for their sins, demonstrating His perfect love, there's opportunity for salvation at the foot of the cross, right? But can I tell you this? There's also opportunity to reject Jesus. Isn't it interesting what happens? Back up with me in verse 32. It says, there are criminals led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And look what it says. They cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. The rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of, of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. At the foot of the cross, we see people being saved. We also see people rejecting Jesus. Some just flat out rejection. Just mocking him. I want nothing to do with Jesus. And there are many in our culture today who just flat reject Christ. Maybe you're here today and up to this point in your life, you've just rejected Christ. I'm not interested. Not for me. No, thank you. There are others at the foot of the cross that as the Son of God died for the sins of the world, listen to me, they were just playing games. Can I ask you a question this morning? Could it be that today... And in your life, you've just been playing games at the foot of the cross. Going through the religious motions or just going through the day in, day out, mountaintops and valleys of life. Really giving no attention to the one who died for your sins. Really ignoring Jesus Christ and His supreme sacrifice. Could it be that you're here today and you are guilty of playing games at the foot of the cross? Living with an ambivalence toward Christ who died for you. At the foot of the cross we see opportunity and we see those who did not avail themselves to that opportunity. But here's the good news. If you're here today, as the old hymn says, there's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Though though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. As we remember. We go back to the foot of the cross, 
remembering his broken body, his shed blood. We are reminded that there is opportunity for salvation at the foot of the cross. And listen, today can be your day of salvation. Today can be your day of salvation. And so, we're remembering once again. I love the picture of the Lord's Supper, the symbols of the Lord's Supper. We are coming once again to the foot of the cross. And faith family, listen to me. As we come to the foot of the cross, our hearts are are stirred yet again, aren't they? Let me read you this quote from John Stott, and then we'll transition into our, our time of communion. John Stott wrote, The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. So as we draw near to the foot of the cross through the Lord's Supper today, we are asking God to let His blazing fire fall on us, that we would leave this place with our hearts stirred, that we would leave today saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And that any unbeliever in our midst, as it says in 1 Corinthians 14, would fall on their face and say, God is in this place and I need Him. Oh, that that would happen as we draw near to the foot of the cross. Would you bow your head and close your eyes just for a minute as our Deacons, come forward. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want to just give you an opportunity to just reflect upon your own life and heart. Think through to think through what's uh, what the Lord is saying to you today. First Corinthians eleven, Paul admonished the church in Corinth because they were really flippant when it came to the Lord's Supper. They were living sinful, divisive, fleshly lives, and this was just some religious step that they did not take seriously, and. Paul even said in that passage, because you don't examine yourself, some are sick and some even die. God's judgment fell upon that church for their their frivolous nature. They responded to the, the things of God. So I want to give you an opportunity right now to examine your own heart and life. And just in these moments, if there's anything in your life that needs to be addressed... Would you just confess it to the Lord? The Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is just admitting to God concerning your sin. No excuses. Just speaking of that sin to God. He knows about it anyway. And then as you Speak of that sin to God. You ask for a fresh cleansing. As David prayed in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Lord's Supper is a wonderful time just to be still. To step away from the busyness and the frantic pace of life. And just examine your heart and life as a, as a follower of Jesus.
Would you do that right now? Or is there anything in my life that needs to be addressed? Anything in my heart that needs to be confessed? I want to be right with you. I don't want to be frivolous and flippant. I want to worship you as the Lord's Supper brings me once again to the foot of the cross. Would you ask God to do that in your life to cleanse your sin? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, just a quick word about our tradition here at Longview Point. We practice open communion, and by that I mean if you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, member of a church in good standing, and you're here with us, you don't have to be a member of this local church to participate in the Lord's Supper. You're welcome to participate this morning. I want you to understand that. But perhaps you're here today and you don't have your eternity nailed down. You can't say that you're saved, that you've been forgiven. As a matter of fact, you feel like you're far from God. That you're not a follower of Christ. Well, in just a moment as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to invite you just to watch. You heard me preach a brief sermon. Now you're going to see a sermon. Symbolically. And it's a powerful sermon. And so if you don't have your relationship with God nailed down through Jesus Christ, just, just don't participate in this Lord's Supper right now. Just watch and consider that Jesus gave his body to be broken for you. And consider that Jesus shed his blood for you. Consider that Jesus loves you. And after the Lord's Supper this morning, we'll have a chance for you to respond and give your heart to Jesus. But listen to this, or watch this sermon being preached in just a few moments. It's a powerful reminder of God's love. And so, whatever situation you're in, this time is for you. God is using this to to speak to us the Lord's Supper. Father, we are grateful for this time to celebrate you. We are grateful for this time to come to the foot of the cross. We're grateful for your sacrifice for our sins. We love you. We praise you. We adore you. We're grateful for grace that cleanses us when we falter and we fail. We're grateful for your spirit which searches our hearts to show us if there's anything in our life that needs to be addressed. We're grateful for the cleansing of confession. You're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're grateful for your presence here. And Lord, we're grateful that in these moments we get to go back to the foot of the cross. I don't know why I'm so prone to forget the realities of the cross. I don't know why it is that I need to be reminded to the degree that I need to be reminded. But you knew we would have that need. And so Jesus, in your wisdom, you instituted this Lord's Supper as a constant, continual reminder in our lives. And we are grateful for that.
So Lord, in these moments, we worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Just one quick word of orientation. Uh, As our deacons pass out the elements, you'll notice there are two cups stacked. You just grab a stack of cups. Uh, The bottom uh, cup will have the piece of bread in it, uh, which we will take first. And the cups stacked on top will have the juice in it, uh, which symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you'll just take a a stack of two cups, uh, and we'll have to pass things by you one time this morning. Just a reminder of that. Let me ask our uh, men to stand, and they will prepare the elements for us today.
I've said earlier, the bread represents the body of Christ broken for us. And just a quick reminder before we partake of the bread, uh, Jesus' body was indeed broken. He was whipped with the cat of nine tails. His beard was plucked from his face. A thorn of a crown of thorns was thrust upon his brow. He was so weakened by his loss of blood and his severe beating at the hands of the Roman soldiers they had to enlist a man named Simon to help him carry his crossbeam to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there at that hill, he was nailed to a cross. His hands were stretched out and nailed to that rough wooden beam. His feet were put together, one on top of the other, and nailed to that cross. And after he was nailed to the cross, they lifted up that cross and put it in a hole. And he hung there from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon, his body broken. Every time he wanted to breathe, he had to pull up on those nails just to take a breath. He gave his body to be broken because he loves you so much. And Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He writes in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The cup reminds us of the shed blood of Christ, his death for sinners like me. Reminds us that he shed his own blood so that our sins could be forgiven. Our sins could be washed away. It always reminds me of that old gospel song. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And Paul goes on to write, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And all God's people said, Amen.